This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast features a recording of Ethan Brand, a chapter from an abortive romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne, published in 1852. It's read for you by Fred Heimbaugh and is approximately 44 minutes. Afterwards, stick around for a discussion of the story with Jesse, Julie from the A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast, Seth, and Rose. Enjoy. Ethan Brand by Nathaniel Hawthorne Bartram, the lime-burner, a rough, heavy-looking man, begrimed with charcoal, sat watching his kill at nightfall while his little son played at building houses with the scattered fragments of marble, when, on the hillside below them, they heard a roar of laughter, not mirthful, but slow and even solemn, like a wind shaking the boughs of the forest." "'Father, what is that?' asked the little boy, leaving his play and pressing betwixt his father's knees. "'Oh, some drunken man, I suppose,' answered the lime-burner, "'some merry fellow from the bar-room in the village, "'who dared not laugh loud enough within doors, "'lest he should blow the roof of the house off. "'So here he is, shaking his jolly sides at the foot of Greylock.' "'But, father,' said the child, more sensitive than the obtuse middle-aged clown, "'he does not laugh like a man that is glad, so the noise frightens me.' "'Don't be a fool, child,' cried his father gruffly. "'You will never make a man, I do believe. "'There is too much of your mother in you. "'I have known the rustling of a leaf to startle you. "'Hark! Here comes the merry fellow now.' You shall see that there is no harm in him. Bartram and his little son, while they were talking thus, sat watching the same lime kill that had been the scene of Ethan Brand's solitary and meditative life before he began his search for the unpardonable sin. Many years, as we have seen, had now elapsed since that portentous night when the idea was first developed. The kill, however, on the mountainside stood unimpaired, and was in nothing changed since he had thrown his dark thoughts into the intense glow of its furnace, and melted them, as it were, into the one thought that took possession of his life. It was a rude, round, tower-like structure, about twenty feet high, heavily built of rough stones, and with a hillock of earth heaped about the larger part of its circumference, so that the blocks and fragments of marble might be drawn by cartloads and thrown in at the top. There was an opening at the bottom of the tower, like an oven mouth, but large enough to admit a man in a stooping posture, and provided with a massive iron door. With the smoke and jets of flame issuing from the chinks and crevices of this door, which seemed to give admittance into the hillside, it resembled nothing so much as the private entrance to the infernal regions, which the shepherds of the delectable mountains were accustomed to show to pilgrims. 
There are many such lime kills in that tract of country for the purpose of burning the white marble, which composes a large part of the substance of the hills, some of them built years ago and long deserted, with weeds growing in the vacant round of the interior, which is open to the sky, and grass and wild flowers rooting themselves into the chinks of the stones, look already like relics of antiquity, and may yet be overspread with the lichens of centuries to come. Others, where the lime-burner still feeds his daily and night-long fire, afford points of interest to the wanderer among the hills, who seats himself on a log of wood or a fragment of marble to hold a chat with the solitary man. It is a lonesome, and when the character is inclined to thought, may be an intensely thoughtful occupation, as it proved in the case of Ethan Brand, who had mused to such strange purpose in days gone by, while the fire in this very kill was burning. The man who now watched the fire was of a different order, and troubled himself with no thoughts, save the very few that were requisite to his business. At frequent intervals he flung back the clashing weight of the iron door, and turning his face from the insufferable glare, thrust in huge logs of oak, or stirred the immense brands with a long pole. Within the furnace were seen the curling and riotous flames and the burning marble, almost molten with the intensity of heat, while without the reflection of the fire quivered on the dark intricacy of the surrounding forest and showed in the foreground a bright and ruddy little picture of the hut, the spring beside its door, the athletic and coal-begrimed figure of the lime-burner, and the half-frightened child shrinking into the protection of his father's shadow. And when again the iron door was closed, then reappeared the tender light of the half-moon, which vainly strove to trace out the indistinct shapes of the neighboring mountains, and in the upper sky there was a flitting congregation of clouds, still faintly tinged with the rosy sunset, though thus far down into the valley the sunshine had vanished long and long ago. The little boy now crept still closer to his father, as footsteps were heard ascending the hillside, and a human form thrust aside the bushes that clustered beneath the trees. Halloo! Who is it? cried the lime-burner, vexed at his son's timidity, yet half infected by it. Come forward and show yourself like a man, or I'll fling this chunk of marble at your head. You offer me a rough welcome, said a gloomy voice, as the unknown man drew nigh. Yet I neither claim nor desire a kinder one, even at my own fireside. To obtain a distincter view, Bartram threw open the iron door of the kill, whence immediately issued a gust of fierce light that smote full upon the stranger's face and figure. To a careless eye, there appeared nothing very remarkable in his aspect, which was that of a man in a coarse brown country-made suit of clothes, tall and thin, with the staff and heavy shoes of a wayfarer. As he advanced, he fixed his eyes, which were very bright, intently upon the brightness of the furnace, as if he beheld, or expected to behold, some object worthy of note within it. "'Good evening, stranger,' said the lime-burner. "'Whence come you so late in the day?' "'I come from my search,' 
answered the wayfarer, for at last it is finished. Drunk or crazy, muttered Bartram to himself. I shall have trouble with the fellow. The sooner I drive him away, the better. The little boy, all in a tremble, whispered to his father and begged him to shut the door of the kill so that there might not be so much light, for that there was something in the man's face which he was afraid to look at, yet could not look away from. And indeed, even the lime-burner's dull and torpid sense began to be impressed by an indescribable something in that thin, rugged, thoughtful visage, with the grizzled hair hanging wildly about it, and those deeply sunken eyes which gleamed like fires within the entrance of a mysterious cavern. But as he closed the door, the stranger turned towards him and spoke in a quiet, familiar way that made Bartram feel as if he were a sane and sensible man after all. "'Your task draws to an end, I see,' said he. "'This marble has already been burning three days. "'A few hours more will convert the stone to lime.' "'Why, who are you?' exclaimed the lime-burner. "'You seem as well acquainted with my business as I am myself.' "'And well I may be,' said the stranger, "'for I followed the same craft many a long year, "'and here, too, on this very spot.' "'but you are a newcomer in these parts. "'Did you never hear of Ethan Brand? "'The man that went in search of the unpardonable sin?' "'asked Bartram with a laugh. "'The same,' answered the stranger. "'He has found what he sought, "'and therefore he comes back again.' "'What? "'Then you are Ethan Brand himself?' "'cried the lime-burner in amazement. "'I am a newcomer here, as you say.' and they call it eighteen years since you left the foot of Greylock. But I can tell you, the good folks still talk about Ethan Brand in the village yonder, and what a strange errand took him away from his lime kill. Well, and so you have found the unpardonable sin? Even so, said the stranger calmly. If the question is a fair one, proceeded Bartram, where might it be? Ethan Brand laid his finger on his own heart. Here, replied he. And then, without mirth in his countenance, but as if moved by an involuntary recognition of the infinite absurdity of seeking throughout the world for what was the closest of all things to himself, and looking into every heart save his own for what was hidden in no other breast, he broke into a laugh of scorn. It was the same slow, heavy laugh that had almost appalled the lime-burner when it heralded the wayfarer's approach. The solitary mountainside was made dismal by it. Laughter, when out of place, mistimed, or bursting forth from a disordered state of feeling, may be the most terrible modulation of the human voice. The laughter of one asleep, even if it be a little child, the madman's laugh, the wild screaming laugh of a born idiot, are sounds that we sometimes tremble to hear and would always willingly forget. Poets have imagined no utterance of fiends or hobgoblins so fearfully appropriate as a laugh, and even the obtuse lime-burner felt his nerves shaken as this strange man looked inward at his own heart and burst into laughter that rolled away into the night and was indistinctly reverberated among the hills.
Joe, said he to his little son, scamper down to the tavern in the village and tell the jolly fellows there that Ethan Brand has come back and that he has found the unpardonable sin. The boy darted away on his errand, to which Ethan Brand made no objection, nor seemed hardly to notice it. He sat on a log of wood, looking steadfastly at the iron door of the kill. When the child was out of sight, and his swift and light footsteps ceased to be heard treading first on the fallen leaves and then on the rocky mountain path, the lime-burner began to regret his departure. He felt that the little fellow's presence had been a barrier between his guest and himself, and that he must now deal heart-to-heart heart with a man who, on his own confession, had committed the one only crime for which heaven could afford no mercy. That crime, in its indistinct blackness, seemed to overshadow him. The lime-burner's own sins rose up within him and made his memory riotous with a throng of evil shapes that asserted their kindred with the master sin, whatever it might be which it was within the scope of a man's corrupted nature to conceive and cherish. They were all of one family. They went to and fro between his breast and Ethan Brand's, and carried dark greetings from one to the other. Then Bartram remembered the stories which had grown traditionary in reference to this strange man, who had come upon him like a shadow of the night, and was making himself at home in his old place, after so long absence that the dead people, dead and buried for years, would have had more right to be at home in any familiar spot than he. Ethan Brand, it was said, had conversed with Satan himself in the lurid blaze of this very kill. The legend had been matter of mirth heretofore, but looked grisly now. According to this tale, before Ethan Brand departed on his search, he had been accustomed to evoke a fiend from the hot furnace of that lime kill, night after night, in order to confer with him about the unpardonable sin, the man and the fiend each laboring to frame the image of some mode of guilt which could neither be atoned for nor forgiven. And, with the first gleam of light upon the mountain top, the fiend crept in at the iron door, there to abide the intensest element of fire, until again summoned forth to share in the dreadful task of extending man's possible guilt beyond the scope of heaven's else infinite mercy. While the lime burner was struggling with the horror of these thoughts, Ethan Bran rose from the log and flung open the door of the kill. The action was in such accordance with the idea in Bartram's mind that he almost expected to see the evil one issue forth, red-hot from the raging furnace. "'Hold! Hold!' cried he, with a tremulous attempt to laugh, for he was ashamed of his fears, although they overmastered him. "'Don't, for mercy's sake, bring out your devil now!' "'Man!' sternly replied Ethan Brand. What need have I of the devil? I have left him behind me, on my track. It is with such half-way sinners as you that he busies himself. Fear not, because I open the door. I do but act by old custom, and am going to trim your fire like a lime-burner, as I was once. 
He stirred the vast coals, thrust in more wood, and bent forward to gaze into the hollow prison house of the fire, regardless of the fierce glow that reddened upon his face. The lime burner sat watching him, and half suspected his strange guest of a purpose, if not to evoke a fiend, at least to plunge bodily into the flames, and thus vanish from the sight of man. Ethan Brand, however, drew quietly back and closed the door of the kill. I have looked, said he, into many a human heart that was seven times hotter with sinful passions than yonder furnace is with fire. But I found not there what I sought. No, not the unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? asked the lime-burner, and then he shrank farther from his companion, trembling lest his question should be answered. It is a sin that grew within my own breast, replied Ethan Brand, standing erect, with a pride that distinguishes all enthusiasts of his stamp. A sin that grew nowhere else. The sin of an intellect that triumphed over the sense of brotherhood with man and reverence for God, and sacrificed everything to its own mighty claims. The only sin that deserves a recompense of immortal agony. Freely, were it to do again, would I incur the guilt. Unshrinkingly, I accept the retribution. The man's head is turned, muttered the lime-burner to himself. He may be a sinner like the rest of us, nothing more likely. But I'll be sworn, he is a madman, too. Nevertheless, he felt uncomfortable at his situation, alone with Ethan Brand on the wild mountainside, and was right glad to hear the rough murmur of tongues and the footsteps of what seemed to be a pretty numerous party, stumbling over the stones and rustling through the underbrush. Soon appeared the whole lazy regiment that was wont to infest the village tavern, comprehending three or four individuals who had drunk flip beside the barroom fire through all the winters, and smoked their pipes beneath the stoop through all the summers since Ethan Brand's departure, laughing boisterously and mingling all their voices together in unceremonious talk. They now burst into the moonshine and narrow streaks of firelight that illuminated the open space before the lime kill. Bartram set the door ajar again, flooding the spot with light, that the whole company might get a fair view of Ethan Brand, and he of them. There, among other old acquaintances, was a once ubiquitous man, now almost extinct, but whom we were formerly sure to encounter in the hotel of every thriving village throughout the country. It was the stage agent. The present specimen of the genus was a wilted and smoke-dried man, wrinkled and red-nosed, in a smartly cut, brown, bobtailed coat with brass buttons, who, for a length of time unknown, had kept his desk and corner in the bar-room, and was still puffing what seemed to be the same cigar that he had lighted twenty years before. He had great fame as a dry joker, though perhaps less on account of any intrinsic humor than from a certain flavor of brandy toddy and tobacco smoke, which impregnated all his ideas and expressions, as well as his person. 
Another well-remembered, though strangely altered face was that of Lawyer Giles, as people still called him in courtesy, an elderly ragamuffin in his soiled shirt-sleeves and toe-cloth trousers. This poor fellow had been an attorney in what he called his better days, a sharp practitioner, and in great vogue among the village litigants, but flip and sling and toddy and cocktails imbibed at all hours, morning, noon, and night, had caused him to slide from intellectual to various kinds and degrees of bodily labor, till, at last, to adopt his own phrase, he slid into a soap vat. In other words, Giles was now a soap boiler in a small way. He had come to be but the fragment of a human being, a part of one foot having been chopped off by an axe and an entire hand torn away by the devilish grip of a steam engine. Yet, though the corporeal hand was gone, a spiritual member remained, for stretching forth from the stump, Giles steadfastly averred that he felt an invisible thumb and fingers with as vivid a sensation as before the real ones were amputated. A maimed and miserable wretch he was, but one nevertheless whom the world could not trample on, and had no right to scorn, either in this or any previous stage of his misfortunes, since he had still kept up the courage and spirit of a man, asking nothing in charity, and with his one hand, and that the left one, fought a stern battle against want and hostile circumstances. Among the throng, too, came another personage who, with certain points of similarity to Lawyer Giles, had many more of difference. It was the village doctor, a man of some fifty years, whom, at an earlier period of his life, we introduced as paying a professional visit to Ethan Brand during the latter's supposed insanity. He was now a purple-visaged, rude, and brutal, yet half-gentlemanly figure, with something wild, ruined, and desperate in his talk and in all the details of his gesture and manners. Brandy possessed the man like an evil spirit, and made him as surly and savage as a wild beast, and as miserable as a lost soul. But there was supposed to be in him such wonderful skill, such native gifts of healing, beyond any which medical science could impart, that society caught hold of him and would not let him sink out of its reach. So, swaying to and fro upon his horse and grumbling thick accents at the bedside, he visited all the sick chambers for miles about among the mountain towns and sometimes raised a dying man as it were by miracle, or, quite as often, no doubt, sent his patients to a grave that was dug many a year too soon. The doctor had an everlasting pipe in his mouth, and as somebody said, in allusion to his habit of swearing, it was always a lit with hellfire. These three worthies pressed forward and greeted Ethan Brand each after his own fashion, earnestly inviting him to partake of the contents of a certain black bottle, in which, as they averred, he would find something far better worth seeking for than the unpardonable sin— no mind, 
which has wrought itself by intense and solitary meditation into a high state of enthusiasm, can endure the kind of contact with low and vulgar modes of thought and feeling to which Ethan Brand was now subjected. It made him doubt, and strange to say, it was a painful doubt, whether he had indeed found the unpardonable sin and found it within himself. The whole question on which he had exhausted life, and more than life, looked like a delusion. Leave me, he said bitterly, ye brute beasts, that have made yourselves so, shriveling up your souls with fiery liquors. I have done with you. Years and years ago I groped into your hearts, and found nothing there for my purpose. Get ye gone. Why, you uncivil scoundrel! cried the fierce doctor. Is that the way you respond to the kindness of your best friends? Then let me tell you the truth. You have no more found the unpardonable sin than yonder boy Joe has. You are but a crazy fellow. I told you so twenty years ago. Neither better nor worse than a crazy fellow. And the fit companion of old Humphrey here. He pointed to an old man, shabbily dressed, with long white hair, thin visage, and unsteady eyes. For some years past, this aged person had been wandering about among the hills, inquiring of all travelers whom he met for his daughter. The girl, it seemed, had gone off with a company of circus performers, and occasionally tidings of her came to the village, and fine stories were told of her glittering appearance as she rode on horseback in the ring, or performed marvelous feats on the tightrope. The white-haired father now approached Ethan Brand and gazed unsteadily into his face. "'They tell me you have been all over the earth,' said he, wringing his hands with earnestness. "'You must have seen my daughter, for she makes a grand figure in the world, and everybody goes to see her. Did she send any word for her old father, or say when she was coming back?' Ethan Brand's eye quailed beneath the old man's. That daughter, from whom he so earnestly desired a word of greeting— was the Esther of our tale, the very girl whom, with such cold and remorseless purpose, Ethan Brand had made the subject of a psychological experiment, and wasted, absorbed, and perhaps annihilated her soul in the process. Yes, murmured he, turning away from the hoary wanderer, it is no delusion. There is an unpardonable sin. While these things were passing, a merry scene was going forward in the area of cheerful light, beside the spring and before the door of the hut. A number of the youth of the village, young men and girls, had hurried up the hillside, impaled by curiosity to see Ethan Brand, the hero of so many a legend familiar to their childhood. Finding nothing, however, very remarkable in his aspect, nothing but a sunburnt wayfarer in plain garb and dusty shoes, who sat looking into the fire as if he fancied pictures among the coals. These young people speedily grew tired of observing him. As it happened, there was other amusement at hand. An old German Jew, traveling with a diorama on his back, was passing down the mountain roads toward the village just as the party turned aside from it, and in hopes of eking out the profits of the day, the showman had kept them company to the lime-kill. "'Come, old Dutchman,' cried one of the young men, "'let us see your pictures, if you can swear they are worth looking at.' 
Oh, yes, Captain, answered the Jew, whether as a matter of courtesy or craft. He styled everybody Captain. I shall show you, indeed, some very superb pictures. So, placing his box in proper position, he invited the young men and girls to look through the glass orifices of the machine and proceeded to exhibit a series of the most outrageous scratchings and daubings as specimens of the fine arts that ever an itinerant showman had the face to impose upon his circle of spectators. The pictures were worn out, moreover, tattered, full of cracks and wrinkles, dingy with tobacco smoke, and otherwise in a most pitiable condition. Some purported to be cities, public edifices, and ruined castles in Europe. Others represented Napoleon's battles and Nelson's sea fights, and in the midst of these would be seen a gigantic, brown, hairy hand, which might have been mistaken for the hand of destiny, though, in truth, it was only the showman's pointing its forefinger to various scenes in the conflict, while its owner gave historical illustrations, when, with much merriment, at its abominable deficiency of merit, the exhibition was concluded. The German bade little Joe put his head into the box, Viewed through the magnifying glasses, the boy's round, rosy visage assumed the strangest imaginable aspect of an immense titanic child, the mouth grinning broadly, and the eyes and every other feature overflowing with fun at the joke. Suddenly, however, that merry face turned pale, and its expression changed to horror, for this easily impressed and excitable child had become sensible that the eye of Ethan Brand was fixed upon him through the glass. "'You make the little man to be afraid, Captain,' said the German Jew, turning up the dark and strong outline of his visage from his stooping posture." But look again, and by chance I shall cause you to see somewhat that is very fine, upon my word. Ethan gazed into the box for an instant, and then, starting back, looked fixedly at the German. What had he seen? Nothing, apparently, for a curious youth who had peeped in almost at the same moment beheld only a vacant space of canvas. I remember you now muttered Ethan Brand to the showman. "'Ah, Captain,' whispered the Jew of Nuremberg with a dark smile, "'I find it to be a heavy matter in my show-box, this unpardonable sin. "'By my faith, Captain, it has wearied my shoulders this long day to carry it over the mountain.' "'Peace,' answered Ethan Brand sternly, "'or get thee into the furnace yonder.' The Jew's exhibition had scarcely concluded when a great elderly dog, who seemed to be his own master, as no person in the company lay claim to him, saw fit to render himself the object of public notice. Hitherto he had shown himself a very quiet, well-disposed old dog, going round from one to another, and by way of being sociable, offering his rough head to be patted by any kindly hand that would take so much trouble. But now, all of a sudden, this grave and venerable quadruped, of his own mere motion, and without the slightest suggestion from anybody else, began to run round after his tail, which, to heighten the absurdity of the proceeding, was a great deal shorter than it should have been. 
Never was seen such headlong earnestness in pursuit of an object that could not possibly be attained. Never was heard such a tremendous outbreak of growling, snarling, barking, and snapping, as if one end of the ridiculous brute's body were at deadly and most unforgivable enmity with the other. Faster and faster round about went the cur, and faster and still faster fled the unapproachable brevity of his tail, and louder and fiercer grew his yells of rage and animosity, until, utterly exhausted, and as far from the goal as ever, the foolish old dog ceased his performance as suddenly as he had begun it. The next moment he was as mild, quiet, sensible, and respectable in his deportment as when he first scraped acquaintance with the company. As may be supposed, the exhibition was greeted with universal laughter, clapping of hands, and shouts of encore, to which the canine performer responded by wagging all that there was to wag of his tail, but appeared totally unable to repeat his very successful effort to amuse the spectators. Meanwhile, Ethan Brand had resumed his seat upon the log, and moved, it might be, by a perception of some remote analogy between his own case and that of this self-pursuing cur, he broke into the awful laugh which, more than any other token, expressed the condition of his inward being. From that moment the merriment of the party was at an end. They stood aghast, dreading lest the inauspicious sound should be reverberated around the horizon, and that mountain would thunder it to mountain, and so the horror be prolonged upon their ears. Then, whispering one to another that it was late, that the moon was almost down, that the August night was growing chill, they hurried homewards, leaving the lime-burner and little Joe to deal as they might with their unwelcome guest. Save for these three human beings, the open space on the hillside was a solitude, set in a vast gloom of forest. Beyond that darksome verge, the firelight glimmered on the stately trunks and almost black foliage of pines, intermixed with the lighter verdure of sampling oaks, maples, and poplars, while here and there lay the gigantic corpses of dead trees, decaying on the leaf-strewn soil. And it seemed to little Joe a timorous and imaginative child, that the silent forest was holding its breath until some fearful thing should happen. Ethan Brand thrust more wood into the fire and closed the door of the kill. Then, looking over his shoulder at the lime-burner and his son, he bade rather than advised them to retire to rest. For myself I cannot sleep, said he. I have matters that it concerns me to meditate upon. I will watch the fire, as I used to do in the old time. And call the devil out of the furnace to keep you company, I suppose, muttered Bartram, who had been making intimate acquaintance with the black bottle above mentioned. But watch, if you like, and call as many devils as you like. For my part, I shall be all the better for a snooze. Come, Joe. As the boy followed his father into the hut, he looked back at the wayfarer, and the tears came into his eyes, for his tender spirit had an intuition of the bleak and terrible loneliness in which this man had enveloped himself. When they had gone, Ethan Brand sat listening to the crackling of the kindled wood and looked at the little spirits of fire that issued through the chinks of the door. 
These trifles, however, once so familiar, had but the slightest hold of his attention, while deep within his mind he was reviewing the gradual but marvelous change that had been wrought upon him by the search to which he had devoted himself. He remembered how the night dew had fallen upon him, how the dark forest had whispered to him, how the stars had gleamed upon him, a simple and loving man, watching his fire in the years gone by, and ever musing as it burned. He remembered with what tenderness, with what love and sympathy for mankind, and what pity for human guilt and woe he had first begun to contemplate those ideas which afterwards became the inspiration of his life. With what reverence he had then looked into the heart of man, viewing it as a temple originally divine, and, however desecrated, still to be held sacred by a brother. With what awful fear he had deprecated the success of his pursuit, and prayed that the unpardonable sin might never be revealed to him. Then ensued that vast intellectual development, which, in its progress, disturbed the counterpoise between his mind and heart. The idea that possessed his life had operated as a means of education. It had gone on cultivating his powers to the highest point on which they were susceptible. It had raised him from the level of an unlettered laborer to stand on a starlit eminence, whither the philosophers of the earth, laden with the lore of universities, might vainly strive to clamber after him. So much for the intellect! But where was the heart? That indeed had withered, had contracted, had hardened, had perished. It had ceased to partake of the universal throb. He had lost his hold of the magnetic chain of humanity. He was no longer a brother man, opening the chambers or the dungeons of our common nature by the key of holy sympathy, which gave him a right to share in all its secrets. He was now a cold observer, looking on mankind as the subject of his experiment, and at length converting man and woman to be his puppets, and pulled the wires that moved them to such degree of crime as were demanded for his study. Thus Ethan Brand became a fiend. He became to be so from the moment that his moral nature had ceased to keep the pace of improvement with his intellect, and now as his highest effort and inevitable development, as the bright and gorgeous flower and rich, delicious fruit of his life's labor, he had produced the unpardonable sin. What more have I to seek? What more to achieve? said Ethan Brand to himself. My task is done, and well done. Starting from the log with a certain alacrity in his gait, and ascending the hillock of earth that was raised against the stone circumference of the lime-kill, he thus reached the top of the structure. It was a space of perhaps ten feet across, from edge to edge, presenting a view of the upper surface of the immense mass of broken marble with which the kill was heaped. All these innumerable blocks and fragments of marbles were red-hot and vividly on fire, sending up great spouts of blue flame, which quivered aloft and danced madly, as within a magic circle, and sank and rose again with continual and multitudinous activity. As the lonely man bent forward over this terrible body of fire, the blasting heat smote up against his person with a breath that, it might be scorched and shriveled him up in a moment. Ethan Brand stood erect and raised his arms on high, 
the blue flames played upon his face and imparted the wild and ghastly light which alone could have suited its expression. It was that of a fiend on the verge of plunging itself into his gulf of intensest torment. O Mother Earth, cried he, who art no more my mother, and into whose bosom this frame shall never be resolved. O mankind, whose brotherhood I have cast off, and trampled thy great heart beneath my feet. O stars of heaven that shone on me of old, as if to light me onward and upward, farewell all and forever. Come, deadly element of fire, henceforth my familiar friend, embrace me as I do thee. That night the sound of a fearful peal of laughter rolled heavily through the sleep of the lime-burner and his little son. Dim shapes of horror and anguish haunted their dreams, and seemed still present in the rude hovel when they opened their eyes to the daylight. "'Up, boy, up!' cried the lime-burner, staring about him. "'Thank heaven the night is gone at last!' and rather than pass such another, I would watch my lime kill, wide awake, for a twelve-month. This Ethan Brand, with his humbug of an unpardonable sin, has done me no such mighty favor in taking my place. He issued from the hut, followed by little Joe, who kept fast hold of his father's hand. The early sunshine was already pouring its gold upon the mountain tops and though the valleys were still in shadow, they smiled cheerfully in the promise of the bright day that was hastening onward. The village, completely shut in by hills, which swelled away gently about it, looked as if it had rested peacefully in the hollow of the great hand of providence. Every dwelling was distinctly visible, the little spires of the two churches pointing upwards, and caught a foreglimmering of brightness from the sun-gilt eyes upon their gilded weathercocks. The tavern was astir, and the figure of the old smoke-dried stage agent, cigar in mouth, was seen beneath the stoop. Old Greylock was glorified with a golden cloud upon his head. Scattered likewise over the breasts of the surrounding mountains, there were heaps of hoary mist, in fantastic shapes, some of them far down into the valley, others high up toward the summits, and still others of the same family of mist or cloud, hovering in the gold radiance of the upper atmosphere stepping from one to another of the clouds that rested on the hills, and thence to the loftier brotherhood that sailed in air, it seemed almost as if a mortal man might thus ascend into the heavenly regions. Earth was so mingled with sky that it was a day-dream to look at it. To supply that charm of the familiar and homely, which nature so readily adopts into a scene like this, the stage-coach was rattling down the mountain road, and the driver sounded his horn, while Echo caught up the notes and intertwined them into a rich and varied and elaborate harmony, of which the original performer could lay claim to little share. The great hills played a concert among themselves, each contributing a strain of airy sweetness. Little Joe's face brightened at once. "'Dear father,' cried he, skipping cheerily to and fro, "'that strange man is gone, and the sky and the mountains all seem glad of it.' "'Yes,' growled the lime-burner with an oath, 
but he has let the fire go down, and no thanks to him if five hundred bushels of lime are not spoiled. If I catch the fellow hereabouts again, I shall feel like tossing him into the furnace. With his long pole in his hand, he ascended to the top of the kill. After a moment's pause, he called to his son. Come up here, Joe, said he. So little Joe ran up the hillock and stood by his father's side. The marble was all burnt into perfect snow-white lime. But on its surface, in the middle of the circle, snow-white too, and thoroughly converted into lime, lay a human skeleton in the attitude of a person who, after long toil, lies down to long repose. Within the ribs, strange to say, was the shape of a human heart. "'Was the fellow's heart made of marble?' cried Bartram, in some perplexity at this phenomenon. "'At any rate, it is burnt into what looks like special good lime, and, taking all the bones together, my kill is half a bushel the richer for him.' So saying, the rude lime-burner lifted his pole, and letting it fall upon the skeleton, the relics of Ethan Brand were crumpled into fragments." Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Julie from A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Hi, I'm Seth. And I'm Rose. And we're going to be talking about Ethan Brand, a chapter from an abortive romance, which I mean, <laughs> I think means it, it, that's a novel, right? That's what they call yeah. novels. And, um, a n- novel he never finished, and it totally feels like it was never, like, there's references to things earlier in the, our story. Wait a second, we didn't get that earlier in our story. <laughs> this, is, this is a culminative chapter, I think, in a novel think, that yeah. was never finished. I know, because when I was reading it, I got, I started it on the Kindle before the library book showed up, mm-hmm. and I got to, like, the fifth paragraph where it says, Bartram and his little son, you know, were sitting and talking where the scene of Ethan Brand's solitary and meditative life before he began his search for the unpardonable sin. And I went, wait, the Kindle thing must have cut some paragraphs together <laughs> that weren't right. And I, was, I started looking online. I was like, this is all messed up. And it, mm-hmm. then I got the book and went, oh, my gosh, now I'm totally confused. I'll just keep reading. Uh, I think a good place to start would be with... Um, H.P. Lovecraft's description of it, because I, I always love the way he describes things. It's like, really? That's in that story? Well, <laughs> we'll have a look. See what he thought. He, he talks quite a bit about, um, Hawthorne. Uh, notably, uh, there's a major chapter about the House of the Seven Gables in, in this essay, and, uh, that, that prompted us to do a show on, uh, House of the Seven Gables. But uh, just prior to that, he talks about the uh, short stories, including The Minister's Black Veil, uh, Edward Randolph's Portrait, The Ambitious Guest, and Ethan Brand, which he calls a fragment of a longer work never completed, which, uh, and then there's a dash there, rises to genuine heights of cosmic fear with its vignette of the wild hill country and the blazing desolate lime kilns and its delineation of the Byronic unpardonable sinner whose troubled life ends with a peal of fearful laughter in the night as he seeks rest amidst the flames of the furnace. So 
Some of Hawthorne's notes tell of weird tales he would have written had he lived longer, and especially the plot being that concerning a baffling stranger who appeared now and then in public assemblies and who was at last followed and found to come and go from a very ancient grave. Uh, obviously, that's not a, the same mm. story, but um, that does totally remind me of a Lovecraft story. <laughs> um, there's one called Nyarlathotep that, uh, if I'm saying it correctly, <laughs> that has a bit like that. But don't you love how he's saying he's he's seeking rest in the flames of the furnace? Yeah, and I guess the cosmic fear, I, I associate the laughter with that, too. It's funny that he mentions the laughter, but mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's the, I guess, most uncanny thing about the story. And Hawthorne even has that little aside about how no poetic description of fiends or hobgoblins is mm-hmm. scarier than laughter. And I've never thought about <laughs> it that way, but. Yeah, so laughter is, it can be mirthful, but it can also be, um, uh, diabolical, yeah. Well, it's just these like random noises, yeah. seemingly random noises that come out of the human body. I can, I guess, I can see why. You know, it's just like, ah, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> you you work on your evil laugh. And yeah. it's, I was going to say you're too good-hearted, obviously. <laughs> um, you're <laughs> well, but I was struck by that same paragraph where he suddenly just ta- starts meditating upon the power of. A laugh and it can be nice and funny or it can be horrible and i was like i never thought about that we all know it it can be used like that like a weapon mm-hmm. yeah it may be the most terrible modulation of the human voice rose you haven't said very much but you're, you're our expert on yes, this yes so. an expert <laughs> yeah um i you know, when we studied Hawthorne in high school, mm-hmm. so much of it was focused on his uh, biblical allegories, mm-hmm. which shows up all over his work, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, so much of it's about Puritans. Um, so much of it is about sin. Yes. Puritans and sin, they go hand in hand. That's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> and occasionally the unfortunate Quaker is thrown in. But... um. <laughs> trod under heel well you know normally it's before they're like stoned to death by the exactly, yeah. but, uh, um, and for this one it's really so much about um, Adam and Eve hmm. there's not you much of Eve that. in here but there's certainly the the sin of Adam and Eve there's a tree of knowledge for hey, sure yeah. yeah it's that idea of um, Ethan Brand is basically repeating the original sin, right? Which is that search of the forbidden knowledge, and it winds up destroying his life the same way it destroyed Adam and Eve's life. Hmm. So, do you think this is a conscious, consciously put into the text? Because I, I didn't get. I mean, I obviously was thinking of original sin, but I didn't think of specifically, you know, the tree of knowledge. Uh, there are a lot of uh, very visual symbols going on in here. But, right, and obviously uh, there's no, you know, tree or snake or well, fruit. No, the, you, well, that, that's right. There's, um, but uh, the, there's only one woman really mentioned, and she's the circus performer, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's obvious that 
uh, had this been expanded into a novel, we would have got uh, much of that tragedy uh, in one of the earlier chapters. But he doesn't specify what kind of sin they they were up to, uh, other than, you know, he tempted her into helping him look for the unpardonable sin. But first she had left her dear old father and broken his heart by going off with the circus in the first place, going for the flashy, interesting thing instead of staying with him. But I got the sense that she fled her father and that the father is is remorseful for something. I mean, it doesn't say, you know, he whipped her every day or anything like that. No, I didn't get that feeling, but... Um, All of the I, visitors, other than the the Bar- Bartram guy, right? They seem to have hideous vices. <laughs> yeah. They, but I think sometimes we're driven into those vices by just a hole that you can't fill. You know what I mean? Like if your daughter ran off and you can't find her and you don't know why she left, or and, and there could be some reason that you sent them away. But I didn't take that as automatically because he had his horrible vice that was um, a problem. And that was actually one of my questions is we meet these old acquaintances who are now ruins of what they used to be. Mm -hmm. And I thought, is that, I was like, is that just random? Is that just showing what happens to us? Is that because Ethan Brand by fleeing his community could have, change things because he used to be simple hearted. Cause what I kept thinking of through this is one of the things I've always heard is that uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne so regretted an ancestors um, being a judge in the Salem witch trials. And he was continually having that also revolving in his thoughts when he would write. And I thought, well, that would be you abandon your community and set yourself above it in judgment. Yeah, you know, there, there's, there's certainly some. I mean, if you if trying to figure out what the unpardonable sin is, I mean, he he yeah, he doesn't ever say he, he state it, but he certainly points us in direction yeah. towards it. Well, it, it is. Um, that, that, it. That's that's the topic of uh, the House of the Seven Gables too, right? There there is a a judge in the in the family's ancestry that haunts the house. Yeah, not physically haunting the house, but haunts the the occupants of the house. But he says, the sin of an intellect that triumphed over the sense of brotherhood with man and reverence for God and sacrificed everything to its own mighty claims. Yeah. He says what it was. Uh, Meaning that he went off. Go ahead. It seems like the irony of him searching for the unpardonable sin is that that in itself is what's unpardonable. <laughs> yeah. I and mean, it's the dog chasing. Yeah, the it's the, uh, you know, you can never reach, you can never reach the unpardonable sin because you're a part of it. Uh, it's, it's the dog. Hawthorne is oh, great in comedy. Like, um, like the chickens in uh, house of the seven gables or the, even mm-hmm. the little boy, you know, biting the head off the gingerbread man in house of seven gables. Hawthorne is, and he doesn't do comedy a lot because it's not his primary purpose, but when he wants to, he can, be both yeah, funny and insightful. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of laughs in this one. But, <laughs> but it's, yeah, I remember, I remember the Scarlet Letter. The kids in high school, they were just like doubled over in their seats reading it. So funny. His descriptions are really great. Yeah. 
There, there, technically, you're right. There is laughter in here. <laughs> um, horrible, horrible yeah. laughter. Not the joke is is uh, not put on the page. One uh, of the things that well, I am. And there's... I was um, no going back to Rose's um, Puritan Puritan comments. I, I was thinking of this as a sort of Puritan Faust, um, which I think is really funny. You know, in in Goethe's you know, post Enlightenment Faust, um, Doctor Faust meets with a fiend and and gains all this worldly knowledge mm. and um, experience of the past. And and when Ethan Brand communes with a fiend, what does he want? He wants to know about sin. You know, it's so right. it's, it's so funny. <laughs> Well, if if you're gonna if you're talking to the devil, you might as well talk about you know his his best topic. Talk about what you, <laughs> you know, know about. Yeah. You don't talk about him, you know, baking or <laughs> burning. <laughs> so how was it for you, devil? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and that's also you know because so then who is this guy? He shows up with his picture box. Okay, uh, this is very uh, interesting, right? Because. Well, Rose, maybe you should answer this. I, I have a guess as to what's going on there. Yeah, I never, I never found anything when I was researching it about the Jew and his picture box. Um, although a German I mean, Jew too, right? <laughs> it's a specific. Uh, I mean, Nuremberg. Yeah, yeah right. that was, that was really strange. About Jews. It's a, it's a horrible echo because what a uh, hundred years later, right? Um, the story has a completely yeah. different sense to it because at one point Ethan Brown says you should jump into that furnace there, bud, and <laughs> that's not that's not a good thing to to talk about when you're talking about German Jews, you know. Well, I was reading yeah. Great Gatsby recently, and and. Uh, you know, that was written in the twenties, and and Wolfsheim is the kind of the resident Jew in that novel, and he's he's um his company is called the Swastika Corporation or something like that, and it's it's what? it's really yeah I know it's bizarre, but it meant good luck. But the swastika, yeah, yeah. to be a symbol of like, yeah. peace and brotherhood. Yeah, exactly. That's it's just so funny how these things get reappropriated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peace and brotherhood. But he, the fact that he's got like a picture box where Ethan Brand can see what no one else can. Well, what does he see exactly? Because everybody sees... Yeah, and that is different than what everybody else sees. Although there's a big description of his his, his hairy hand. is <laughs> um, magnified, right? So it, it, I've never seen one of these things in real life, but it's, it's some sort of uh, chamber, right? With oh, a yeah. viewing like a uh, magnifier, yeah. well, it's because it's not it's it's some sort of uh, optical illusion based, and he seems to have lots of images. Whereas most of them that I was reading about, they seem to only either have one or two. But it, it's got to be a symbol for like historic. All the images are historical, right? They're you know yeah. Nelson and Napoleon and. Uh, great castles of Europe that have been destroyed, and um, so it's it's like um, human history and mm-hmm. and sin in human history. Mm. And it says his hand might have been mistaken for the hand of destiny, which right. is capitalized. Right. And then right. later, after right. he's 
yeah, pointing and moving the pictures. And then he looks and he says, I remember you now, muttered Ethan Branch to the showman. Ah, Captain, whispered the Jew of Nuremberg with a dark smile. I find it to be a heavy matter in my show box, this unpardonable sin. By my faith, Captain, it has wearied my shoulders this long day to carry it over the mountain. And so you're just like, oh, this took on a whole new turn. Yeah, and it's like you know, it's you like know what's going secret, on. They have a secret knowledge shared between them that the others are not privy to. Yeah, or he's lured him on to see it in other places, or I don't know. Yeah, and then there's it's the very, bit where very mysterious. The kid, the kid's looking at it, and then Ethan Brand looks through the glass. I, I don't quite understand how the the physics of this works, but Ethan Brand somehow looks through the glass, and the the kid gets freaked out by his magnified eye. Or right, like Ethan Brand's <laughs> just not a nice person. <laughs> no, he's he, in a sense he's supposed to be something like. Yeah, Fauster. He's not the devil himself, but he's he's the sort of you get the sense that he, you know whatever he's doing, it's in the further he, he's trying to break the record of sinning, right? Uh, so he's done everything horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone else can sense, like especially the children can sense, you know, yeah. evil around him. And the adults try and explain it away and say, yeah. Oh, you're being silly but even they feel uneasy. And then there's the amateur sinners, the those uh the drink the three drinkers. This is this is one of the questions that uh our narrator, uh Fred, had. He says, Don't the three drunks somehow remind you of Job's three comforters from the Bible? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, and he says he can't figure out how it connects exactly, but um I'm not I'm not familiar with Job's three comforters. How, Job's how work? Question Job, you know, has everything taken away from him by the devil with a bet with God when right. the devil is actually just like um he's not presented as evil necessarily, just he's just a questioner. Right. And so when Job is like really furious at God going, I didn't do a thing to deserve this. What is up? And his questioners are, the, are three good friends of his who keep coming and going, presenting all the reasonable man-made understood ideas of, well, you shouldn't blame him. You must have done something or we can't always understand what God does. You should just take it. And he keeps going, no, I know I didn't do anything bad. No, that's not how God works. He doesn't punish you for no reason. No. So um, Job doesn't necessarily get a specific answer when God does show up, other than, where were you when I made the world? Mm -hmm. Which is a, an amazing speech, if anyone ever wants to go yeah. read it. It's just fantastic. But um, but these three guys are saying everything that human God beings makes say to joke. explain things away. That's yeah. God, it's God making a joke. I just... It's like... It's, or God being sarcastic. Uh, well, it's, that's why the book was written, going, no. why is it that these things happen? And so the it's a poetical book in, in that sense. is It's understood to be it's not historical. It's deliberately constructed to explore the question. Mm -hmm. And that's why it leaves all those things there and leaves them all open. But, uh, yeah, so that's why that's an interesting connection. I didn't think about that. Because Ethan Brand doesn't see himself as Job necessarily. Uh, no, he's, yeah, he's... Job doesn't go looking for any of that. No, he's, uh, he's not. This is it. it. It's a very mysterious sort of moody piece, but, um, 
it's interesting because when I, you know, I'm not a religious person, so I, I don't exactly believe in sin. But I do think, you know, there's evil that you can do. Um, what, what, one, one of the sins that I know is a, a sin for religious people is suicide, right? Did, doesn't he kill himself at the end of the story? Yeah. I yeah. Think so. and, he, and he can't, mm-hmm. you know, he can't, you know, have somebody come in and, you know, take that sin away by having him confess it. So, I, I mean, on a superficial reading, that would seem to be technically an unpardonable sin because, you know, he can't have a priest come in and take that sin away by, you know, confessing that, you know, I, I, I had sinful thought about, uh, killing myself and then I did it. Oh, wait, I, you know, cause he's dead, right? So technically that is an, uh, not exactly an unpardonable sin, but an unforgivable sin or, yeah. an, I don't know what the technical term for that is. Julie. But I don't think the Puritans had Right. Confession in Puritan in that yeah. way. No, but um, at least repentance uh, for sure. Uh, yeah, right. There's, there's no way. No, they did have repentance, but it. I mean, it's not the idea that you have to confess to a priest. It's just the idea that you repent for what you do. Well, he, he doesn't say he's a Puritan, so I, I mean, we could assume for a moment. Yeah, but Nathaniel Hawthorne. Yeah, is, certainly, certainly. You have point. to know from what was his huge back then religion. for New England. Yeah. I mean, there's. <laughs> he would have said if he was the a, guy's a cursed not, papist. Yeah, well, <laughs> been a lot like the wandering Jew. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. yeah, right. But, but even you, so, you, you can't know, repent you, if you're if you've committed suicide. There's no, there is no way to. That's right. Repent or do good works or whatever whatever it is that you're supposed to do as a Puritan to to gain absolution. I mean, I guess you could argue if if you're going to by straight Calvinism that if you're if you're one of God's elect that that presumably there's nothing you can do, including suicide to take yourself out of that order. I, I'm not a, I'm not a theologian, so I don't know if that really works. Yeah. But in theory, well, I, I don't guess. think anybody really knows. Right? <laughs> this, this is why there are so many different <laughs> approaches, but, but there's a long paragraph right before he does that, which talks about his fall, you know, how he was simple and loving. And I guess that's the flip side of looking at Job as somebody who, is that he goes asking those questions of God, and when he finds the answer, he embraces the the dark side of it instead of going, well, I'll just go ahead and, and trust and be, remain or come again the simple, loving person. Because then he says um, that his heart had withered, it, it had ceased to partake of the universal throb, he had lost hold of the magnetic chain of humanity, he was no longer a brother man. And it goes on and on, it says, thus he became a fiend. He began to be so from the moment that his moral nature had ceased to keep the pace of improvement with his intellect. And so even in his suicide, he's embracing it because he could turn back at any moment. And of course, you know, just to throw modern Catholic thinking in there, which wasn't always this way, I know. But, you know, the idea is if you commit suicide, you're either crazy, in which case you're not accountable for your own actions, or there's always that moment of death when you can repent. Um, but see, we don't think, feel, Hawthorne's not giving us that in this. No. Hawthorne's just going, I have achieved what I wanted. I'm done. And you feel like when the simple lime burner was saying, oh, the story's always said that the devil spoke to you out of the fire. Mm. You feel like 
when he's talking to that fire or, you know, oh, Mother Earth, and there's that fearful peal of laughter that rolls through the sleep of the lime burner and his little son, you don't know if that laughter is from Ethan Brand throwing himself in or if it's from the fire going, here we are together again. Because <laughs> it was when he was looking in the fire that he started going, what is the unpardonable sin? Huh? I mean, so you don't know if it was him pursuing his own intellect without applying any um, breaks to it, or if, if he was continually being tempted, like with the German Jew going, carrying this around, it's getting harder <laughs> and heavier all the time. Rose, you were going to say something? Yeah, and I think I think by the time he kills himself, he's already lost so much of his humanity. There's nothing left that wants to repent. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. that's kind of what happens. I mean, the, the, his quest for the sin separates him, him from the rest of the human race to such an extent. And Hawthorne's all about community. Community yeah. is, is yeah. the ultimate good, being a part of a community, being a contributor of a community. That's Hawthorne's ultimate ideal in a lot of ways. And Ethan Brand is so separate from the rest of the human race. It's almost as though, I mean, like you said, is his heart has already withered. Like he's already yeah. dead in a lot of but actually, it hasn't withered, right? It's it's calcified. <laughs> that's a, well, yeah, that's, a, that's the the mysterious ending, right? Is that they look into the fire, they see that the Bartram says something like, "He's added to my collection of lime," right? Because they find his 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 corpse, the lime the lime from the marbles, all all uh, fully oxidized or whatever. Yeah, and. and the skeleton and the heart. The skeleton has the heart, and the the it's this visual symbols in here are really great. A couple of times, this is what, one of the things is is visually this would make a great movie, but technically, I mean, there's no action at all. It all takes place on the on the same in the same spot up on the on the mountain, and you know all the visitors come there, right? Uh, so the story would have to be completely rewritten, but visually it's really great. And one of the things that happens prior to, to that scene, the, with the final visual is that it's the heart of, of the fire is behind a cage. Um, in it's described as, I haven't got the line exactly there, but I, it's like a, a jailed chamber. I think it's, it says something like that. And that's a, that's a heart inside a uh, rib cage, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he, his, he's going into his, his hardened heart right? and mm-hmm. having it all burned away. Um, and being, is it being purified? Right. Is, is he getting back, uh, the purity that, you know, he's so, hurt himself with because that's the opposite of doing, you know, uh, an unforgivable sin of, of suicide. He's, I mean, in the story, we know he's done evil, but we, what evil he's done is not exactly clear. But in the story here, all he does is, is harm himself. But also when he throws himself into the fire, he's throwing himself back into where the idea originally came from. That's true. And it seems like the furnace is a symbol for hell and the devil. They talk about seeing the devil come out or somebody imagining seeing the devil come out of it and talking to Ethan Brand. 
What yeah, that, that's the talk of the village. Yeah. The talk of the village is that he, he would spend his, his days looking into the fire, or his nights looking into the fire and, and communicating with the devil. Um, and that's what made him go off and look for the unpardonable sin. One thing I found when I was doing a research on this was some some scholar made a connection to Cain of Cain and Abel, and I, that's a good connection. I can see that, and I, it got me thinking about the great symbolism of double symbolism of the name Brand, because sure. on the one hand it's <laughs> like Cain, it's yeah. a brand is a mark. Um, on the other hand, and he even uses the word in the story, a brand is a burning kind of burning log. I think in the context he uses it in the lime kiln. Mm. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, it, it has both that, um, fiery kind of hellish imagery and also the, the, um, connotation of a mark that, that sets him apart. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because that's, he's given mercy. Cain is given mercy, although the mark is on his head. I mean, he's allowed to go off and still try to make his life. And That's interesting. Ethan Brand is described when when the when we first meet him, he's described as having bright eyes. So you know, I think his mm-hmm. his mark is almost inside, um, and it could even mm-hmm. heart. Yeah, because it's Jesse. When you were saying so much of the story takes place in one spot, and to me, I was just thinking, oh yeah, it's all internal. Yeah. You're just told what everybody thinks. Very little of it is done in dialogue. Mm-hmm. I want to, but back. also the. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say the other thing is when when he is uh, saying there's an unpardonable sin, he he's telling that to the old man whose daughter runs off to the circus, which I still think is hilarious to have a story this old and girls are running off to the circus. <laughs> I just didn't think it was that old of an image, you know. <laughs> but um, that was funny, <laughs> just, yeah. it describes her, you know, riding the horses or whatever <laughs> she's doing with the jewels and, um, but. He still quails in front of that old man. He knows how he helped corrupt the daughter at whatever point of her career. I I felt like it was afterward, but yeah, did he drive? Her? He he's not completely, huh? Did he drive her? You know, did he take her? Yeah, you her, don't know if he helped her circus. Did he convince her? The, the audio drama or found her later. That, um, they dramatized some of these. Scenes with it's they re rejigger the story so it doesn't all take place on the hilltop. It, it takes place mm-hmm. in flashbacks, and they rejigger some of the scenes so that we see the corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the one of the ones that's in there is uh, the banker who's in love with him. Uh, he convinces her to give him money, um, and then he takes that money and. You know, wow. like they're very. I think it it might be a mistake to start trying breaking down what what these sins could be, right? So it's like he's corrupting. That's what his his ultimate, you know, process of finding sin is to corrupt others, and have mm-hmm. them try and show him what the unpardonable sin might be, and yet maybe that is the sin itself. Right. Is that the corrupt well, others? Yeah. Well, because that would be that would go again back to community. Yeah. 
what are you supposed to be in your community? You're not supposed to be going around corrupting everybody. You're supposed to be there helping each other. But the thing, too, is that what I was thinking just now is, though, it says his eye quailed before he quailed before the old man's eye. And so I'm like, so even though he was like, there's an unpardonable sin, I've done it. Here I go into the fire. To me, that line there, he there was still hope. But he embraced the unpardonable sin because he felt shame. Well, uh, th- this is this is you know I think where uh, a lot of the the heathens like me and <laughs> or religious folks like you will have a disagreement. Like I think you know some people are unredeemable in the sense that they've done things that are so unforgivable that you don't want to welcome them back into any kind of community, even if it you know it's locked up in a building. <laughs> I don't know. I know is a form of you, you have a way for redemption in that. I mean, by being away from society that way too. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, anyway, yeah. that's what you were going to say something though. Yeah. I wanted to go back to the end of the story. Cause I thought there were a couple of interesting things in that. Um, one of the interesting, the very last uh, kind of clause of the, of the story is the relics of Ethan brand crumbled into fragments fragments and i you know i thought that was an interesting choice of the word relics as um i know it's a puritan setting but it it had very kind of catholic (laughs) connotations to it and also it felt like um i'm kind of with jesse that even though it kind of tells us in a couple points what the unpardonable sin is i think there are a couple that maybe they're not all unpardonable but they're pretty bad and bertrand i think commits you know his sin of of just so nonchalantly breaking up these fragments of Ethan Brand and saying, Oh, I have a little more lime. It's, it's mm-hmm. kind of the sin of, of American capitalism, essentially. It's, ah, it's you yeah. know, everything that's destroyed ah. under the foot of, Oh, a little more profit, you know? Yeah. You know, it's funny because for me, the fact that it ends with the lime burner, just being like, Oh, I have another half bushel full of lime. So <laughs> it all turned out all right in the yeah. end. For me, that's, I mean, joke. well, it's the fact that everything Ethan Brand did, that's what it amounts to. Yeah. That's it. Line. I mean, yeah. that's all that's left. Even the fact that he returns back to his home village, he does it because there's nothing else for him. I mean, if he was searching for any sort of glory, he never got it. No one in the village cares really what he did. He comes home and they offer him, the drunks offer him the black bottle, but no one ever really seems to, I mean, other than as the curiosity. Yeah, he did. As he some guy who talked, he told the story about, yeah. no one cares what the unpardonable sin is or what he discovered. <laughs> and at the end of the day, all that's left is, you know, half a bushel full of lime extra for the lime burner. Yeah, that's a good point, too. That's, that's a really good point. That is yeah, interesting. Turning to the place where he, he doesn't even return to the village. He returns to the, the furnace, right? He, he doesn't go down to the village. Right. They, they all come up yeah. from the village to him. So, yeah, that is very interesting. And even that geography of the, the kiln being set above uh, above everyone else. Hawthorne apparently saw one of these lime kilns when he was walking through the Greylock Mountains, which I'd never heard of in Massachusetts, which Greylock in itself kind of sounds Lovecraftian almost. <laughs> so he's walking to the Greylock Mountains and he sees this like burning lime kiln in the middle of the night. He's like, ah, story idea. 
Definitely. Well, I, I think, I mean, th- th- there's something cool about this because we've all stared into fires, I assume, you know, sitting around a campfire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're looking into the fire, you're not exactly seeing anything, right? You're just seeing movement, but there's not like, you know, there's no demon in, you know, oh, at least, you know, look at a cloud, you know, you see a horse. Or, there's no objects that are there long enough for you to see. But w- w- the difference between a lime kiln fire and a regular fire is intensity, right? The the process of burning lime is much more uh, high temperature. So it's like an intensification of that sort of common you know, looking to a wood fire sort of thing we've had, I guess. And maybe if you heat up, heat it up high enough and you're uh, up all night, maybe then you will get these weird ideas in your head. <laughs> that, hey, you know what I could do is, is, is go out and find and burn the lime fumes. Um, I, I, I want to come back to this though, because I think it's, it's at the heart of the story. We all sort of have an idea of, you know, there's, some some evil there. Uh, there's evil actions. And when I was listening to the audio drama version, it's by uh, the Weird Circle, which is a very weird sort of syndicated. Uh, Back 1940s, yeah, yeah, 1940s audio drama. It's it's good actually. It's quite a good uh, adaptation. One of the things that I was thinking about is because you know I'm not I don't I don't frame it as sin, but there there is a kind of evil that I try to avoid. And it's a personal, you know, it's not going around eating babies or anything like that. It's, it's <laughs> Jesse does not eat babies. Yes. Uh, well, I, I love the police. I, I don't even eat veal. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's more like um, uh, it, there's not using me- people as a means to an end, right? And that's what he does in in that adaptation is he – he says, I have this evil thing in me that is going to explore and try and find and achieve the unpardonable sin. Because it's almost like he's been tempted by the idea that there's there's levels of sinning, right? There's a sin in thought and there's a sin in action. Um, presumably there's different levels of sins and, you know, stealing a, a gingerbread man is not as big a deal as, you know, killing somebody they're both sins of action uh but you know using a person as a means to an end to me is is evil and uh, i guess there's levels of doing that right so you could uh you know lie to somebody and that's a kind of evil uh but then you know you use them to make some soap that's a lot more evil (laughs) right (laughs) because well, yeah, there are degrees of evil. They're stealing $5 from somebody, and there's what you said. I mean, you know, there are degrees. Of, exactly. But also, I would argue that what you are saying about using people as a means to an end is, you're right. I think that actually, however many permutations of that we can look at, that is one of the ultimate sins. That's the complete opposite of, to get all religious on us, love thy neighbor as thyself. Yeah, it mm-hmm. certainly is you know? the community thing, well, right? That you're... Was, oh, yeah, I was going to say this is in a pride. Pride, right. yeah. yeah. Se- setting yourself above uh, right. others. Which is, of course, the original sin as well. 
That's right. It, and it's it's Satan's sin, and it's the I mean the, that I am as good as God, and it's the one that everybody's tempted to. And in Hawthorne's book, it would have been for sure. Uh, explain to me the original sin. Uh, How's it, it's the sin of pride? Because I I know uh, about the the apple or the sorry the fruit, but how is how is that a sin of pride? Uh, the sin of, oh, it's because, um, they were trying to be like God in their knowledge. They ate the fruit to get the knowledge that God had forbidden them. They thought themselves equal to God and worthy of the knowledge he possessed. So it was the sin of pride. Makes me want to reread Paradise Lost. (laughs) Well, when they're tempted, yeah, because when they're tempted... The, the serpent is that's essentially what he's going is he he's God's afraid you'll be like them him you could take it you won't die and that's what they go oh well, okay I will eat it I'd have to go back and read the exact no wording. no I it's it, just I'm out of my head think, like when I think of pride I always think you know like haha I've I've made this perfect work of art and now. Aren't I better than everybody else? <laughs> uh, it sounds like he's, they're trying to be equal, which I guess is uh, a sin of pride if you think being trying to be trying to be equals. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not upsetting uh, the hierarchy. Yeah, obviously. Uh, you know, if 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 God's above you and He's created you, and you say I'm 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 just like you, then I guess that could be considered prideful. But yeah, whatever. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, if this is if this is being read from a Christian point of view, which I um, I think you have to read it yeah, that way. Or or it, yeah. yeah, that's really that's in that medium. It's it's not Christians a normal weird story. Yeah, in that respect, it's 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 like all of I mean, all of his stories seem to be like this. Yeah, yeah which is Rapid daughter and and uh, the other one. They're all about. Uh, Maybe it is all the sin of pride. It's Christian, but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel dogmatic to me. It doesn't feel like preachy or or didactic. I mean, there, I guess there are a couple of asides that are, but mostly it's you know I guess mm-hmm. because it kind of plays fair with um, you know as we talked about earlier, these village people aren't necessarily village people. I <laughs> just had a bad image yeah. there. <laughs> the, <laughs> <laughs> The costumes are quite no Indian, the villagers aren't the best people either necessarily, and I guess the only thing that you know sets them above Ethan Brand is that they're you know they're they're bad people together you know they're they're more or less aware of their vices and um and kind of slogging on together, but they're still not the best people, and there are i think he points to some advantages to you know trying to better yourself and intellectual pursuits to a point and i think just the fact that hawthorne is a writer kind of means that he is kind of sensitive to intellectual pursuits and and mental mm-hmm. mental improvement so it doesn't it doesn't come off as um sinners in the hands of an angry god sort of preachy well, maybe yeah. it would be also that idea in looking at pride and looking at the story, which I hadn't thought of as being a modern kind of a look or fresh, but you're right because I'm reading Dombey and Son right now, which Dickens said was all about pride. I'm, a, I'm not even two thirds of the way through and I'm just going, 
I get it. I get it. What is that? Is it, it how many like, ways? It sounded like you said zombie and son. Huh? It sounded like you said zombie and son. I'm sure that's not oh. what you said. <laughs> zombie and son might have been a little more lively. I'm like, Dickens, don't let me down. I was really interested, and now you've changed it, and I'm less interested. But zombie and son, oh, yeah. Okay. But um, the... But the thing about pride in this case, which you point out with the villagers, would be that they have a sense of perspective of their own flaws and their own capabilities and where they're living up to them and where they're not and where they're, they need help and where they don't. Well, I, the, I think that the, the narrator who has those uh, – one, one of the things that's mentioned is the doctor, the, the drunk doctor, right? Mm-hmm. He's – he he's described as being having a natural gift for medicine, right? And he goes around, everybody goes around getting healed by him. And then, you know, it says, and he saved many from their deathbed. And then it says, and like as not, or just as often uh, brought them to an early grave. It's like, <laughs> right. Okay. So <laughs> that is saying that he's not actually, if he is gifted for medicine, his alcoholism and his, uh, he also has like a horrible bedside manner. Yeah. <laughs> um, is, is like, he's, he's not, none of these people are, uh, n- there's no pure person there who's, you know, without sin, I guess, but they're pretty horrible. And the, the, the least sinful person, I guess, is the kid. Yeah. Uh, as you would expect. As you would expect. Yes. Um, I also dog, maybe, which I, I want to talk about the dog yes. because <laughs> chasing the tail is the most interesting thing to me. It's when later the dog has seen that it has done something um, worthy of pride right? <laughs> that everybody appreciated. It is unable to do again. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> because... <laughs> It's like the dog was in, you know, infected by a demon or something, and then got all this attention, right? And and it had been going around giving, offering its head to be stroked. Um, it got all this attention, and then having seen that attention, uh, was unable to do it again, even though it would have, you know, got the attention that it wanted. The love that it wanted from the, the yeah, and I think mm-hmm. I think that's a good example to contrast with uh, the whether it's religious or secular, the idea of unconditional love in one way that you know, ah. and I think that's one of the messages mm-hmm. of the story is that you don't have to do good, amazing things to receive love, whether it's you know from your neighbors or from God, but you. Love ultimately is not contingent on you chasing your tail or doing something amazing. Well, chasing the tail is is kind of like what Ethan Brand was doing, right? He's he's yes. come back to the spot. He's he's failed to find. Uh, well, he says he's found it, and it's in the human heart, right? All right. <laughs> oh yes, I'm part of the thing. Sure, have some more in this bottle. I felt that's so right. clever for for making the connection. Like as soon as the dog was chasing its tail, I was like, "Oh, that's Ethan Brand," and I felt so clever. And then he comes yeah. out and says it. I'm like, "Ah, oh, darn it! It's not as fun now." <laughs> oh. But you got there first. That's right. You got there first. That's right. You got you got a check mark from the teacher. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the kid, but the kid is the other embodiment, kind of a good. 
the story opens with the father saying, you know, talking to his son saying, you know, you'll never really be a man. You have too much of your mother in you. He'll never, you know, be hard enough or tough enough to be a man. And then comes Ethan Brand, Mm -hmm. who's so tough that he went off on his own on this bizarre quest that separated himself from everything he loved. Um, So it's kind of like, you know, how bad is it for this kid to not be tough enough? Well, that's interesting because his mother. But I remember also with Ethan Brand is thinking back on, I remember when I was a sensitive, you know, guy by myself and I just was thoughtful and I thought, oh my gosh, is this the path the kid could take? Because he's also sensitive. Mm. You know, with this. Yeah, I mean, he's lost his sensitivity through his quest. His heart is hardened. still has it. His innocence, his purity. Mm-hmm. His heart was hardened. So the father will never do that. He's just, he's never going to think that much. Um, I, I want to point out something interesting too, that you, know, you, you guys may not have noticed um, because I've heard the audio book that we we've put in the, in the front of this, uh, the word K I L N. How is it pronounced? Kiln. Kiln. Right. But there's another pronunciation. And that's the one that um, our narrator, Fred, uses. And it's huh. kill. Kill, okay. A-I-L-L sound. And I, I was like, oh, huh. he screwed this up throughout the whole thing. And then I went and looked it up. And I said, <laughs> oh, I better check this. And I kill can be pronounced kiln or kill. And hmm. I'm like, well, that puts a big different focus on this, right? The word kill coming up again and again and again. How was it pronounced back in Hawthorne's day? The, the etymology doesn't say, you know, where and when uh, hmm, it would okay. be pronounced. However, I will point out Fred is in eastern, eastern, northeastern states, so he's he's more of an authority than any any of us. <laughs> <laughs> Great, that's good. Well, that's true. So, although it was the technical term for the piece of equipment, so true enough, I would have been reading it. But, but as a yeah. it, as a choice, um, mm-hmm. if you have to go with kiln or kill uh, to use over and over again, I think kill works a lot better, just as mm-hmm. a sound. Um, yeah. So, Rose, you were telling me that when we were talking about this last week, you said. Keep an eye to the portrait of Dorian Gray or the picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah, I think the story is almost exactly the same as the picture of Dorian Gray. Interesting. Uh, Even the idea of like the marble heart instead is a portrait. Um, And I think it's kind of amazing that two such completely different writers um, wrote stories with such huge parallels and the idea of sin and corruption and you know that fall from from innocence um especially because oscar wilde book opens with you know all art is useless Mm. and obviously hawthorne is someone who places great importance in you know metaphor and theme and moral moralistic stories which so much the opposite of what Oscar Wilde. Well, now that you mention it, um, I failed to uh, fully articulate one of the questions that Fred pointed out. 
um, he, he, he had this to say, isn't standing confusing? Heart of stone says he's damned, but purity and whiteness suggest redemption reminiscent of Oscar Wilde, the happy prince, whose heart oh, survives the end uh, of the fire, or the fire at the end. Yeah, Oscar Wilde uses white a lot as a symbol of purity, even in the, the picture of Dorian Gray. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that they are that different. Uh, the thing is, you know, Oscar Wilde is English and he's gay, <laughs> and Hawthorne is not gay as far as we know, and uh, definitely American. But, but I don't know if his gayness really influenced his writing. I mean, uh, that was I think it did. part of his life. Uh, at least part of it, you know. When I well, I mean, attitude towards writing that makes him different. I, I think, uh, well, I mean, when I read Oscar Wilde, I see a kind of, the same kind of sense of humor as Hawthorne. It's very, um, mm-hmm. It's it's not it's not you know Wilde is much more intense with going for the jokes, but oh yeah, but <laughs> there there I use the word flamboyant. Yes. It's one of the things I look at his writing. But I mean, yeah. he really loves the jokes, um, and his personality was that way too, evidently. Hawthorne um, is 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 much subtler with it, but they're certainly very thoughtful writers, both of them, and I mean. When I read Oscar Wilde's uh, The Importance of Being Earnest, I, I see a huge conflict that he is completely trying to avoid, right? Uh, you guys all read that play? Yeah. Or seen that yeah. play? Wonderful. Long ago, yeah. I mean, it's the one he, it's the thing he's known for. I, he did write a mm-hmm. lot of, of uh, essentially well, the, fantasy uh, fairy tales, right? Yeah, and the and, famous Canterville ghost story. Mm-hmm. And well, that that one, you know, that that's a much lighter piece than most most of them. But the importance of being earnest is is like a uh, it's a comedy of errors, but essentially it's about being being a liar and being uh, uh, yeah. an abuse, abuser of of people's relationship but it's in the context of you know sort of a upper crust uh, society whereas this is the opposite this is uh basically working class people and even the those who remember that in this story there's a one guy who he he's lost body parts the lawyer yeah he has a phantom limb you can still sort of Imagine feeling in his, you know, thumb and reaching out his hand and, and all that. That's right. was really. But he lost part of his foot. You know, he lost part of his hand. Now he can only use his dun 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 <laughs> left hand. <laughs> the, the worst hand of all. The wax. The, the wax. hand. Yeah. Yes. So uh, the, the 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 focus is, you know, completely different. But they're both very literate. Um, and it's interesting. Yeah, I, I hadn't made that connection to. I mean, ultimately, you know. We're... Yeah, just just for how similar, especially because Dorian Gray was his. I believe it was his only novel uh, that he wrote. Could be. And I think just coming from such different literary movements, I think it says something about you know that idea. Um, the universality of that idea, regardless of of how you view the world, there's something so 
controversial about that idea of like being corrupted by sin or being corrupted by evil or whatever you call it. Um, and, and the effect it has on you and the people around you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, that nebulous term, the human condition that I think, you know, we we're kind of a science fiction podcast and we, we talk about a lot of really weird and wild and wonderful imagery and, and fantastic worlds and all that. But most of the writers we talk about one way or another are trying to get at one aspect or another of, you know, what it's, what it's like to be alive and, and human and trying to, you know, make your way in the world. Mm. And so I think, yeah, I think Rose is right, even though they, they might have different ideas or conclusions about that, but there's inevitably going to be a lot of similarity in the, in the, in the themes that pop up and, in the truths, maybe that's too strong a word, but the, the truths of, of humanity and, and intellectual exploration and all of that. Let me read the description here for, um, the happy prince. So uh, now I want to read it. It yeah, sounds really good. I know. I, I was thinking I've never read it. Why not? Here's, here's the description from Wikipedia. In a town where a lot of poor people suffer, a swallow, uh, the bird, who has been left behind after his flock flew off to Egypt for the winter, meets the statue of the late Happy Prince, who in reality has never experienced true happiness. Viewing very seems... Sorry? <laughs> and then he poos on it. <laughs> yeah, could be. <laughs> uh, viewing various scenes of people suffering in poverty from his tall monument, the Happy Prince asks the swallow to take the ruby from his hilt the sapphires from his eyes and the golden leaf covering his body to give to the poor. As the winter comes and the happy prince is stripped of all his beauty, his lead heart breaks when the swallow dies as a result of his selfless deeds and severe cold. The statue is then torn down and melted, leaving behind the broken heart and the dead swallow. These are taken up to heaven by an angel that has deemed them the two most precious things in the city of God so they may live forever in his city of gold and garden of paradise. Holy cow. Wow. That is uh, a little Here's bit of a uh, convert. A little <laughs> bit of uh, heavy, heavy uh, symbolism going on in wow. this. I mm-hmm. want to read that now. Um, well, and you said the Canterville ghost was, if I have the name right, was um, a lighter thing. And that's well, what I thought light. until I listened to, yeah, Heather Ordover did it, and uh, um, I was listening to it, and I got to the end, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I never realized how this really suddenly turns into something much more intense at the very end. Well, the, the ghost himself is kind of like a horrible guy, but the, the focus is almost entirely on not him, but on the reactions of the family to him. Oh, yeah, but it's the very end, which is, of course, is the actual heart of what the point is of bringing him into contact with that family altogether and with the daughter of the family and what she does for him and how, what happens from that. I don't remember. It's the funny stuff that we remember. Yeah. He runs out of, he runs, he can't keep doing the blood. So he's having to take her watercolors and that's why the blood's green one night. And that's the funny stuff and the twins who are terrorizing him. But when you get down to the, I can't remember the daughter's name, her encounter with him, Mm -hmm. I just suddenly went this whole story now that I'm listening to it, which is, you know, as we know, the virtue of audio making you pay attention, Mm -hmm. it completely changed everything for me. 
it's kind of like you talking about the the what is it the trouble of being earnest the importance of being earnest the importance of being earnest is I you were saying that about how it's about lying and this and that and I went oh I always just remembered it as a pure comedy it is like I have to take another but you know people are using each other as a means to an end and what what what's funny that's why Jeeves and Bertie are funny I mean you know but um that is the Jeeves and Wooster thing right that is um. It, it is exactly the same stuff as you see in the importance of being earnest. It's yeah. kind of, you know, the bumbling fools, uh, getting, getting themselves into trouble and it all working out in the end. Yeah. But the Canterville ghost is not, I mean, when you, you should reread it. It's I, it, like I said, it was revelatory to me to go, wow, I'll never think of this story the same again. Uh, there's a, another one that I'm reminded of that I, I really like uh, by Wild uh, called The Selfish Giant. Have you guys read that one? Oh. I've apparently missed out on a lot of his uh, short stories. So I haven't heard of any of these. It's a, it's a, it's it's like a fairy tale as well. I'll listen to this one. This is I'll, I won't read the whole thing, but this is uh, <laughs> the Selfish Giant owns a beautiful garden which has twelve peach trees and lovely fragrant flowers in which children love to play after returning from school. On the giant's return from seven years visiting his friend, the Cornish ogre, he takes the fence at the children and builds a wall to keep them out. He puts a notice board, trespassers will be prosecuted. The garden falls into perpetual winter. One day the giant is awakened by a linnet. That's a bird, I think. Mm -hmm. He discovers that spring has returned to the garden as the children have found a way into the gap in the wall. He sees the error of his ways, blah, 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 blah. Um, and there's huge symbolism going on in that one, too. Um, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what it's about, is that they're really into heavy visual symbolism. Like, they use their, descri- their powers of description in writing to give us images. Because I, I, mm-hmm. I didn't make that connection before, but I really like both Wilde and uh, Hawthorne and Maybe it's because yeah. of that. That is true because there is something so similar about that description of um, his marble heart in the cage mm-hmm. and, and the picture of um, Dorian Gray's portrait. Mm-hmm. Locked away in the that, closet. Like, you know, that hair-raising or in the attic. image of, um, of corruption. Yeah. Yeah, where all the corruption is sort of cast inward in a sense um you might have to do uh, the importance of being earnest uh, not the importance of being earnest the other one picture uh, the, the picture <laughs> Dorian Gray. Gray. Yeah. Or both. that's what i was thinking yeah i was like this, oh okay count uh, or something i got that screwed up um but yeah i've never read it and i want to because it oh you haven't i mean it's, oh. to me it's a lot like if ethan brand were written as a novel obviously Change, some changes, but um, oh yeah, the German jokes. For me, it's a lot like if Ethan Brand had actually been a novel. Mm-hmm. 